Welcome to Vase, a podcast about weird stuff. I'm Peter C. Hine, and I'm joined here, as always, by Man About Town and Yule-born Stephen James Buckley. Thank you. Hi, everyone. It's quite interesting that I, I was actually born on Christmas Day, and Hine was born on Easter Sunday. Easter Monday. So, Easter Monday, sorry. That's right, So that is yes. why, that's why we're so special. That's, that gave, gives us a full quota of specialness. Um, Absolutely. But, so we're recording this on the 15th of December uh, for hopefully a 21st of December release, which is... That's the... my mum's birthday. Oh, is it? It's also... Yeah, happy birthday, the... mum. There you go. I'm sure she's listening. And um, it's also the winter solstice, midwinter. Um, and um, so that seems like a decent time to release this. Yeah, yeah. Lots of darkness. Exactly. So we, the, once we release this, after that, everything will get better. The light will seep back into the world. Exactly. We'll bring some light into the world. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, it's been a, a weird year. Very, very weird. Um, and um, it's rapidly drawing to a close. Um, and we've only done, I think, two actual catch-up episodes, one being the first episode mm-hmm. where we've talked about ourselves between ourselves amongst ourselves about ourselves yeah um and the last one was was it august um i don't know yeah it was it was what it was a lot warmer than it is now yes yeah i know that for certain it was minus Um, 10 this morning when i got so are we i'm assuming tonight we're going to talk about some of the things that we've been doing over the past since since then yes what we've been up to yeah, I mean, we've been doing quite a lot, and we've actually, I think, been doing more than we can talk about tonight. So yeah. I think if all all goes well, we'll have like a wild card episode recorded at the end of the year where we can try and mop up anything that we don't get to talk about tonight. Yeah, um, we're kind of planning that. I'm hoping it comes to pass. Um, if not, then you'll yeah. just have to wait till the next catch up episode. Uh, but because we've had such fantastic guests over the last few weeks and months it's has really sort of reduced the amount of time that we have to spend talking about what we've been up to so this is as good a time as any this christmas episode let's talk about what we've been doing yeah and uh we could think of it as almost like a a christmas gift to our our listeners because we love christmas that was beautiful. Uh, yeah, I have uh, an arsenal of sounds here. One of which was the introduction to Christy Berg's uh, A Spaceman Came Travelling, which is an episode in itself. Next Christmas, oh, yeah. we'll do an episode on that. Yeah, um, that's not a promise. Uh, I'll do my own episode. I'll start my own podcast and yeah. just an episode about that weird song. Like, who's yeah. going to do... A, like, who, who in the world would do a sort of hit Christmas pop song about such a, a niche, like... It is a really, know, really think, weird song. It is a beautiful song, but it is so lovely. weird. It's so weird. We should get... I'm going, We're going off topic. Let's let's get off Christy Berg. Come on. No, we could have let's him get, as a guest. Let's, let's see if we can get him as a guest. Ask him what he was is he thinking. Still, is he still knocking about? I think he's still knocking about. Yeah, we'll, we'll, I mean, not not, not around my end, but I, I don't no. see him regularly or anything. But, I mean, I don't think he's busy. <laughs> so yeah so let, let's go back a bit then um to actually before we recorded our last catch-up episode uh, which i think was the beginning of august 
Um, at the very end of July, we attended a talk at the Todmorden Folklore Centre. We did. And that was, that was Phil Legard. Yeah, and he did a talk called The Shadow Over Ilkley. And uh, for those listening who aren't from the north of England or from England at all, Ilkley is an area of Yorkshire, um, which is part of an area where there are a lot of recorded UFO cases. Uh, there's sort of Todmorden, Hepton Bridge, um, and Ilkley, and all of the Yorkshire Moor area. And the talk was really, really good. It was really, really interesting. And uh, one of the things he was talking about was the frequency of sightings of obols, orange balls of light, which apparently appear over the Yorkshire Moors quite frequently. He talked about a lot of other cool stuff as well. Uh, too much to get into, really. So apparitions on the on the Moors, um, a lot about the origins of chaos magic and that kind of thing, which is really, really interesting. But me and Buckley were particularly taken with this idea that we could go to the Yorkshire Moors ourselves and have a look for these obols. Yeah, I think we, we, we kind of thought we'd we'd experience something, didn't we? Yeah, it we thought to be we'd like have a, a place go. Of, a place of, uh, of weirdness. So that was how we sort of approached our first base field trip. We booked an Airbnb in, was it Thornton? I don't know, something like that, a nearby village. Yeah, and in, we booked a, an Airbnb at a nearby village. And we also took some equipment with us. Uh, we took a, a spirit box uh, and a four-track tape recorder to try to get some EVP. And we were there for two days, were we? And yeah, two we, nights. Yeah. So what did we get up to? Well, one of the things that we... Uh, did was we took a Ouija board. So I'd mentioned in a previous episode, I think that I'd bought a Ouija board off eBay and it was really small. Uh, so I bought an adult size Ouija board and we took that along. But um, that wasn't actually something we were able to work with um, because Hein had been doing some work with the I Ching, which had specifically said to him, advised him almost not to do any kind of practical magic working or anything. We basically got the idea that it didn't feel right to do anything like that. Yeah, I, I'd had a back and forth with the I Ching about this. And it was basically the every time I'd asked the I Ching about various parts of whether I should do practical magic or how I should approach it, it nearly always said, don't do that just yet. And I'd discussed it with the I Ching back and forth over weeks of readings and I'd booked the course with Mark Vincent which we talked about in the last episode for September and the I Ching was all for that it was like yeah that that's going to be great it was giving me readings like the hexagram for inner truth and all this sort of stuff and it gave a really positive reading but it basically kept on saying for me not to do any practical magic in the meantime so I just yeah. took that to be to be that I shouldn't try and try and eat practical magic until the course with Mark Vincent. And then so approaching this weekend what we were doing, I asked the I Ching how best to go about our plans. So I said, 
I asked it sort of how it, the experimenting with the Ouija board and the spirit box and the EVP might affect myself, my practical magic practice and vase. Um, and the interpretation to that sounded a lot like Chapel Perilous. It was, it was very like, uh, this is really bad. So then I gave it a few days and I asked it again, how should I approach occult experiments this weekend? And it gave me like a really weird reading, which hinted at some sort of descent between us, between Buckley and I, and like, it was very, very odd reading. Um, and so then I asked it a third time, like, how will our ex occult experiments be different this weekend if we don't use the Ouija board? Because I had an idea that perhaps the Ouija board was maybe a step too far because you do hear a lot of really bad stuff associated with Ouija boards. I've, yeah. I've never, I don't think I've ever used one. Have you used one before? No, never. No, but that's, that seemed to be the thing. So I asked it how we would go without that. And it was much more like it was, it said youthful folly. And it, so ba I basically hinted at the fact that, um, uh, the, to proceed this way would eff effectively open up opportunities for us in the future, although it might not be the most productive experience in itself. It also said very, very clearly in the reading, the young fool seeks me. At the first oracle, I inform him. If he asks two or three times, it is importunity. If he importunes, I give him no information. And so that was a pretty solid reading that I hadn't to ask Stop asking so many questions, Hein. About the yeah. same thing over and over again. So I did. Yeah. And I haven't really gone back since, not because I'm, I don't want to. I think the time has passed where things will be cool again between me and the Ching. But <laughs> I, I'm just, uh, I, I think perhaps I was just, because I was doing a reading every, every couple of days and quite detailed readings. I filled like half a book with all these yeah. different readings I was doing. I was working a lot in the interpretation of it because that's the side of it that I enjoy but it, it was quite a scholarly approach and I think that I was burning myself out on it a little bit and burning obviously the patience of the I Ching right down to a little nub. Yeah so we we stuck to um, the idea of using a uh, spirit box and um, a four track cassette recorder to record the uh, any potential EVPs, electronic voice phenomenon that might appear on the recording. So it's a it's a sort of tried and tested kind of ghost hunter technique. Um, you know, it's one of these things where people use analog equipment like a set because it's magnetic rather than digital. So, you know, that has along with it all sorts of associations with the um the other world, so to speak. And it can be physically affected. By, yeah. by outside well, yeah. stimulus. Digital can't, can it? Yeah. Not to and the same so, extent, yeah. So the idea was that we'd we'd sort of set up a, a kind of safe environment for doing this experiment. We'd use the spirit box and we'd, we'd um, you know, we'd kind of see if we could contact anything or if anything would happen that way. It didn't quite work out the way it was planned. Um, so what we did, we arrived in Yorkshire, we arrived at the Airbnb, plenty of time, and uh, we decided we'd go out for a walk on the moors first. Um, Around before... nightfall, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, just to see, you know, and then we'd come back and do the spirit box session. But as often happens when we go on a walk that's led by me, which often happens, um, we got lost on the moors in the night. Uh, so we could barely see. Uh, and we were on, like, I, th I think back to it. At the time, I didn't feel afraid. No. At the time, I, d I didn't feel any fear at all. I just felt kind of like I was enjoying myself. But then looking back at it, I think, wow, I was on like the North Yorkshire Moors at night, completely pitch black, 
miles away from anyone. There was no, like, it was not good underfoot. Like, we had torches, but, like, if one of them torches had gone, if anything had happened, yeah. we'd have been fucked. We had, we had a- torches and compasses, which really, like, we're not the kind of swashbuckling adventuring types. I don't, I don't know. Like, I mean, we, we could barely read yeah. the compasses. They didn't really help. Um, and no. we were completely lost um, and it was dark and we didn't see any obols. No, I mean, I, I took, I took some pictures that looked like obols as in there were pictures of airplanes going over and for, on a photograph, it looked cool. You know, it looked like a, a UFO or a, a weird ball of light in the sky, but it was just an airplane. I could have, I could have started a whole hoax uh you know <laughs> yeah. thing going on there and jim mosley yeah i mean it could have set off a whole uh feedback loop couldn't it i could have i could have because as our previous guest alan greenfield said there are no hoaxes so basically by the time we got back to uh by the time we got back to the the the, the accommodation there was not time to do any experiments because we'd been horribly lost uh, yeah so it was really late so yeah we uh the next day we went for another walk, fresh start. We, I think we did almost exactly the same walk, but, but in this the light. time in, in the light, yeah, which was completely yeah. different. Yeah. This obviously hints at some sort of weird um, shared, like... Folie deux kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. just did the exact same walk again, but in the, in the yeah. daylight, like, like, like it wasn't like the, 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 the we didn't learn our lesson at all. We just went and did it again. <laughs> yeah, it was nice though. It was really nice. It was. I mean, one thing I forgot to mention though: the, the first time we did it at night, uh, the, there is a stone circle up there called. Is it the sisters, the seven sisters, the twelve sisters, something like that? There's a stone circle up there, and we um, we saw it, but. It was there was a bunch of people there doing something, probably a ritual, yeah, uh, of some kind. So we didn't get to, to yeah, we didn't get to like sort of spend any time around it, you know, and and sort of fully kind of because it would have been nice to go there just by ourselves, quiet night time, and just experience whatever there was to experience at that stone circle, um, at that what was obviously presumably some kind of ancient place of power, um. So we weren't able to do that. Anyway, we went back the next day and we saw the sewing circle, but there was just a bunch of families like having a picnic there. So we didn't get any vibes from it whatsoever because there was just kids running around. This is the problem with stone circles, isn't it? Everyone wants to go and look at them. And then we went to to a great like kind of magic-y shop in Leeds called Global Tribe, which is like a bookshop, magic shop, coffee shop. Yeah, so downstairs they have candles, crystals, stones, smudging sticks, all that kind of thing. It's really, it's really good. And then upstairs is the bookshop and a coffee shop, which is also really good. I was putting away the coffee that day, um, yeah. and um, but the coffee there is excellent. And it was good coffee. We bought a few books. So yeah, we 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 did this. We went to this magic shop, drunk a bunch of coffee. Got some really nice curry from a local takeaway. And then we decided to do the spirit box session. So what is a spirit box session? Well, we did the Estes method, didn't we? Yeah. So the Estes method is a method of using the spirit box, uh, which was devised by Conor J. Randall, Carl Pfeiffer, and Michelle Tate. And this was when they were investigating the Stanley Hotel, um, which is near Estes Park, which is where it got its name from. So just to backtrack... 
what is a spirit box when we're talking about it in this context? Yeah, a spirit box is uh, a spirit box is like it's a modified um, FM and AM radio, basically, like a little handheld radio, and it it's it's been modified so that it scans through the stations um, at a set of kind of different speeds depending on on the setting that you do it you set it to, and um, the idea is that you you put it on your it's scanning through these different radio stations and it, it picks up little snippets of conversations that are said on the radio uh, that you hear from the radio or from even being sung by songs. Uh, so, you know, a song lyric, might you might hear a snippet of a song lyric, then a snippet of conversation, then noise. And the idea is that it can be used as a as an almost random random word generator, almost a random phrase generator. So it's like a it's like a sort of sea of words, a sea of phrases that's there that you're just randomly picking from. And the, the Estes method utilizes that, doesn't it? By uh, Well, yeah. So what was innovative about the Estes method is that before that, most people, what they'd done is sort of put the, the, uh, the spirit box scanning and then just with a group of people listened there and picked out bits that they thought might form a sentence or a phrase or a word that was relevant, maybe asked it questions, and uh, then they interpreted the noise. What the Estes method is, is it's almost double blind. So only one person, the receiver, can hear what is coming out through the spirit box. And they wear noise-cancelling headphones, um, and they also wear a blindfold. So they basically can't see anything that the other person in the room or other people in the room uh, they can't see or hear anything that they're saying or doing. So then the other people in the room or the other person in the room asks questions. They can't hear what's going on in the spirit box. And then the person with the blindfold and the headphones who's listening to the spirit box speaks the phrases that they think they're hearing. So there's no suggestion put in there. There's no suggestion put in their mind you know, in terms of what the question is being asked. It's almost like a pure way of doing it. So you're effectively making the theory is the spirit, the middleman. You ask them yeah. a question and then you expect the answer to be channeled through the spirit box into the person who's receiving it. Yeah, so when you go back and listen to the... Um listen to the sound you don't listen to the sound of the spirit box you listen to the recording that has you'll hear the person asking the questions and the person that was listening to the spirit box blurting out phrases and you would hope to find some kind of sync between the two and that's that's how it that's how it works isn't it i think we've um, explained it in quite a complex way but if you yeah watch hellier <laughs> if you watch hellier that's what they're doing in hellier and, and i'm they sure there's videos on youtube of it as well youtube but, yeah but it's quite a popular method now yeah, and um, so we did it a couple of times and we tried it with each of us being the operator and each of us being the seer. I, I quite enjoyed it, but you hated it. Yeah, I hated it. I, I'm, there was a few factors that might have been involved in that. One, I drank a lot of coffee and I was quite overstimulated, so there was that. Do you have? Can we put, play a sample of the noise? Yeah, this is what it sounds like uh, when the spirit box comes on. So as you can imagine, it can be quite stressful. Yeah, so um, that, that was overstimulating. The other thing is that I've got chronic tinnitus, so that was playing havoc with that. Um, and also probably some 
form of undiagnosed ADHD or something, which was just, the whole thing was a really unpleasant experience for me. And I didn't really enjoy being in there. I found it really stressful. But luckily, Buckley seemed to enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, so after my initial session, which I didn't want to repeat, we sort of settled into a pattern where Buckley was in the box and I was asking the questions, which mm -hmm. is uh, where we got the most productive responses from it. And we did get some results. Yeah, there was some interesting stuff. I, like listening back to it, it almost seemed like the answer worked better if it was slightly delayed from the question. So quite often yeah. the question you asked, the answer would come a, a few seconds after. And I wonder what would happen if we sort of shifted it all back. But anyway, we, we didn't get any actual EVPs on the tape recording. So the tape recording picked up nothing of interest. It was just pure noise. Sorry, sorry, Ginger. What we were doing so that people understand is that we had in one corner of the room, we had the person who was in the spirit box. So they had their headphones and a blindfold on. And then in the middle of the room, we had the person asking the question. And then behind the person asking the question, we had a tape recorder picking up everything in the room. The idea being that we wanted to see if there was any correlation between the EVP that was picked up on the four track recorder and what was going on inside the spirit box. Yeah, so we had it all synced up time-wise so that we could go back. I went back and listened to it the next day. Um, and yeah, so the, the, we can forget the tape recorder because nothing, um, nothing happened with the sound from the tape recorder. But something interesting did happen relating to what was Yeah, recorded. so I was pretty freaked out already at this point because I'd had an unpleasant experience in the spirit box, not necessarily through any sort of spirit contact, but just through... Um, it basically overstimulating me. Um, and I, I, I was in a bit of a weird place anyway, so I'll just give some context to what you're about to hear because we have a recording of that session. It was a very, very short session uh, because of what happened. Um, and um, so that's why I'm speaking sort of slowly, quietly and carefully throughout this, but also yeah. because we didn't want, I, I, because we were in a small room, I didn't want Buckley to obviously hear what I was doing. We had studio headphones and everything, but we were keeping our voices down um, yeah. and we started with just a bit of a introduction to each session saying that we only wanted positive outcomes and that kind of thing to try to sort of invite a better mood. vibe yeah, yeah. and uh, bear in mind that i shout when i'm giving the answers because i've got like radio noise blasting into my ears so and it kind of felt i don't know i felt like i was in a really heightened state like i was giving a performance yeah so Alan Greenfield has likened the SDS method to scrying. And that's where yeah. we got these terms from the operator being the person running the session and asking the questions and the seer being the person who is in contact with the spirit through the radio noise. We used a, an SB7 spirit box and I'm going to link to in the show notes to an article that Greg Newkirk himself wrote about the spirit box, which gives some basic instructions on how to get started with it and so on. But basically, I think we were using 200 millisecond scan yeah. on FM radio. Um, and yeah, so we would give it a play so people can hear what happened. Okay, so this session will only allow an experience that's positive and towards a higher good. And um, negative energies are not I welcome. see you. Okay, and then. Um, Edward! Okay, hello, Edward. Um, what do you um, uh, what would you like to tell us? Is there anything that you'd like to say to us? I wanted to ask you some um, advice on how we can improve our experiments and that sort of thing. Um, um, we're really pleased to have you here. Um, we want only good things from this. Um, do you have any advice on where we can look for places to go or places where the uh, the veil is thin? 
in the north of England or anything like that? Or do it. Other? Okay, whereabouts? Where, where do you think is a good place? Whoops. Whoopsie. Okay, so... Um, Falling. Where to? And what about... Um, any way to improve our experiments? Mr. Mr. Who? Don't do it. Don't do what? The, this experiment or other experiments? What? This experiment. Do we do this experiment or not? Okay, so you can hear me getting a bit flustered here. What happened was, as soon as Buckley said, don't do it, you hear a clattering behind us, uh, which was behind me, which was the tape recorder stopping. Now, I didn't know, but the tape had run out of tape, which is why it stopped. But because it happened at the same time as Buckley said, don't do it, then the tape stopped. I freaked out a little bit, <laughs> I have to admit, and I went and pulled Buckley out yeah and then after that we went uh i went to go and have a look at the tape recorder and to kind of you know take it all down we were done for the night and uh as i pulled the plug out the uh of the of the tape recorder uh pulled it out the wall socket it was boiling hot and it fell apart the whole plug thing just fell apart in my hands and i couldn't hold it because it was so hot um now if that had carried on if the tape hadn't stopped or if i hadn't have said Stop it. Don't do it. Uh, don't do it. That There could have been a serious fire, maybe even an explosion. So we, we don't really know what was going on here. I mean, it could possibly be a coincidence. It doesn't feel like it to me. I, I was pretty freaked out by it. I was freaked out anyway. I was freaked out already. But, <laughs> I mean, one interpretation is the don't do it was to stop because the plug was going to get hot. Another is don't do it, and then something made the plug hot to stop us. Uh, I don't know which way around that would be. Yeah. Um, and either way, is a little bit freaky. But the whole thing did sort of really um, freak me out quite a bit um, because up to that point, because I was getting into magic and that kind of thing, I'd always run quite controlled contact with any very minor spirit work that I'd been doing. And after that, that really sort of kick-started me doing daily banishings, uh, taking, um, you know, uh, ritual baths, ritual bathing, all that sort of thing started after that because I'd got so freaked out by the results that we were getting from that because that's only one recording. I think we got three recordings altogether and yeah. all of them, we contacted something with a name and in all of it, it answered questions to a greater or lesser extent. That was probably the most dramatic, well, quite by quite a long way, the most dramatic yeah. session that we did, but there was others where there was some general banter. Um, and we, it was the first time that we tried the Estes method as well. So we were getting used to it. You know, you can tell that I'm not really confident in what kind of questions I'm going to be asking. I, I kind of, I don't move with what's happening so much. I get set on a particular path of questions, trying to try, trying to get the, the idea that we want some information on places to visit or what to experiment instead of chatting directly, I suppose, with whatever we're in contact with. If you believe that we were in contact with anything. I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I'd like to do it again. I'd be willing to go in the box again because I found it quite thrilling and quite exciting. Um, yeah, I, I would do it again. It's definitely. up to you. 
Yeah, I, I would do it again. And the, the thing is that now I, I'm, I'm doing more spirit work and magic and that kind of thing. And I think I have a, a better idea of, you know, how to operate to banishing and all that I was going to say, like the hygiene. Exactly. Um, Whereas we, we, were, we were going into that fairly cold, weren't we? And the I Ching had told me not to do any practical magic. So I was thinking like, well... Does, does that count for banishing or whatever? And the whole thing, I, I, it, it messed with my head a little bit. I got over it. I noticed how it didn't stop you from, like, it didn't make you switch to decaf. Oh, no, no. That stayed, yeah. So it can't have been that, yeah, yeah. Can't have been that the, fucking effective, can it? So we've talked about Leeds. How about what you got up to in London, Mr. Hine? Yeah, thank you, Mr. Buckley. So I travelled down to London in September for the Mark Vincent course. That was the Sigils, Servitors and Possession States course. A two-day workshop at Treadwell's, the esoteric bookshop in London. Um, and I thought I'd make a weekend of it. I'd go down there um, and stay a few nights and just have a look around London, catch up with some friends and so on before before I did the course. So I went down and I visited the British Museum, um, visited Watkins Bookshop, Atlantis Bookshop, etc. Uh, I went to see um, at the British Museum, I was looking at um, John Dee's scrying mirror and all that kind of thing. Um, which was really cool. The main part of my journey was going to Mark Vincent's course. And it was a really, really good course. I was quite ill. I knew I didn't have COVID. I'd done several COVID tests, but I had a a bad cough and a cold, um, which was a shame. But the course was really good. That's when I first met Mark Vincent. Uh, I chatted to him quite a lot about some of the things that we discussed in the last episode of the podcast. Um, and that was when I asked him to take part in, in the vase interview. Um, and it was during this course that I first encountered Herman. So Herman is a servitor that I'm currently working with. Um, so a servitor is, it's kind of like, it's chaos magic idea. And it's kind of like a step up from a sigil in that you create a symbol with an intention like you would with a sigil, but the intention is more like a kind of duty or a job or a task that the servitor has to undertake. So, you know, a common one is having a servitor for healing or something. You know, you create a servitor 
you give it a sigil, you give it a duties, you know, that would be to help a certain person with a certain health problem for a certain amount of time. And then you charge it as you would a sigil. And then basically then the idea is that you've created a kind of thought form that then carries out this duty. And a really good description of this process is in Condensed Chaos by Phil Hine. So um, check that out if you want to know more about it. I'm not 100% certain on this idea. I kind of go more towards Aidan Wachter's idea, which is in six ways. I, I don't really like the idea of just creating a spirit or a being out of nothingness and kind of enslaving it to a particular task. The way that Aidan Wachter describes it is much more like there's certain spirits out there who are really interested in people and who are effectively looking to collaborate. And by this process of servitor, inverted commas, creation, you're effectively petitioning a spirit to help you in a task. And that was far more how my experience with Herman was. So during the course, Mark Vincent put us all into a trance, which I mentioned in our interview with him. And during that time, we were supposed to open ourselves up to being contacted by a servitor who might want to help us with various things that we'd been talking about within the course. So we went to the trance and I was fairly deep in the trance. And then I encountered when Mark said, ask it its name, ask it if it has a sigil. I asked it its name and it said Herman and I asked for its sigil and I got a flash of a sigil, which I then noted down. I was quite deep in trance at that point, but then suddenly because I was ill, I had like a coughing fit and I jumped up from where I was sitting. It woke me up from the trance and I didn't want to spoil everyone else's experience. So I kind of just left the room at the back and missed the rest of the uh, induction and, and the session, the trance session that we were having. So I never really got the end of what the whole course had built up to. But I did remember Herman. I know it's a weird name, Herman, for a, a spirit. You talked about it, the sigil coming to you in a flash. What did that look like? It was I imagine kind of it to a... look like like the vase sigil, the vase logo. <laughs> you know, but that's, it, I don't know. It, it, it was a, um, yeah, it was, it was lit up. Yeah. But it was white rather than pink right. or purple, like the vase sigil. And it, it was kind of fleeting, but I remembered it and I, I jotted it down. Um, and, and the name was quite clear, like Herman, but then obviously there's Hermes, yeah. Um, and there's Hermanibus, uh, who's a kind of cross between a, a kind of like hybrid god form, which is halfway between Anibus and Hermes. Those are things that I've looked up since. 
to try to get to the bottom of it. But I, I'm not sure that I was contacted by either Hermes or Hermanibus. Um, Herman's okay. Herman, Herman is okay. to be one of these famous spirits. Like Herman is, is, is just okay. That's it. I, I don't need to be working with celebrities for this to uh, for this to work. So basically, I'd I'd been interrupted by my coughing at the essential part of the trance where I think Mark was going to lead everyone on the course to ask the servitor that they'd made contact with to assist them in a particular task. But what I did have was I had a sigil, which I will put in the show notes, and I had a name. So when I got home, uh, after I'd finished the course, um, and I'd got back to North of England, I essentially created a sigil, gave it a material base as the process that is in six ways. Uh, I charged the sigil and I wrote on a piece of paper the exact task that I wanted Herman to undertake. And the reason that I did it that way is that my thinking is that if Herman was to help me in this task and it goes well, that perhaps in the future I, I could work with him on other tasks, which is a far more animistic view, I think, of servitors in that they're not created and destroyed just for your will, which feels a bit like sort of some sort of like slave. I was going to say it's a bit, it's a bit Tory, isn't it? It's yeah, bit, it's not really you. No, and and so I I thought rather than that I would give him a very specific set of instructions and then ask nicely for help with it and make I make a weekly offering to Herman and I make an offering after he's done a particularly good um what I asked what the task that I gave Herman was to assist in the recording and planning of vase only my part because I didn't feel it ethical to have it affect anything that you Buckley were doing that anything that the listeners were doing or anything that a guest was doing. So it doesn't interfere with anything of that. It's more like asking for inspiration, asking that when I'm preparing for vase or when I'm recording vase, that I try and keep in mind that it should be for the good of all and all that kind of thing, all that sort of hippie stuff that I'm into. This could explain why we have so many technical issues because he's not helping me. No, I could ask him to help you if you want. There's, there's no, there's no, um, there's no problem with that. It's just I don't, I don't know. I don't want to stretch him. I don't want to stretch him <laughs> no, too thin. I think he's up to you it. Know. But, but, um, but no. And I do give an increased offering to him after we've done a recording, and particularly when it's gone well. And I say a few words to him. I speak to him. I treat him with a lot of respect and um, ask for his help again each time. And. At the moment, I'm really, really, really happy with what we're doing, <laughs> um, and that that is how sort of Herman came into the picture. And so Herman is like um, basically working with us on the podcast. He's a bit like a sort of mascot, isn't he? Yeah, and I like the fact that he has quite a normal, ordinary name because yeah, it, it makes him more like one of the boys. <laughs> And does Which, he does he have a physical component? 
Yeah, as a material base. So I created quite a posh looking um, sigil for him. Oh, wow. um, Which is, um, I'm showing it to Buckley now. um, Yeah, he's got, listener, he looks good. Yeah, he's he's got, so I I created him with silver pen on a black, a black piece of card. And then I gave him a material base of a little jar, which I put him in and I put the little note with my petition to him in and then I sealed it and anointed it with oil and I charged it as I would a sigil using hyperventilation and then I made some offerings and yeah, I, I really like having him around. He's, um, he's, he's a, a really, really good, um, like friend, I think of him as now, which which sounds a bit weird, but I mean, um, that that's that's Herman for you. Uh, I I don't like the idea, which some people might think from that, that I've trapped him in a, in a little jar. That's not it at all. It's just a material base, so that I have something to concentrate on, as someone would if they had like a little statue of a yeah. saint or something. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's a way of focusing my attention. So he's not living in that jar. That's that's the wrong way to think about it. Is it worth poking some holes in the top just in case? I think he's all right. He'd let me know yeah. if he wasn't. Okay. During that time as well, when I was in one of my coughing sessions uh, out in the kitchen at Treadwell's getting water, I bumped into a guy who I started talking to, just chatting to, and he turned out to be a tarot reader uh, for Treadwell's. I met this guy, started chatting to him. We chatted about some stuff. We got on really well. And I thought, yeah, I'll get a reading from him. But he had no sessions open. He was booked up for the time that I was down there. So I just said, next time I come down to London, I will connect with you again and I'll get a reading while I'm in Treadwells. So in October, I did go back down to London. And that was for the shamanic course at the Sacred Trust, which we'll talk about a bit later. But basically, on the way to Treadwells, which I hadn't been to since I'd first encountered Herman, I was on the tube about to get off. And as I was standing up to get off, I was standing behind a guy, a really weird looking guy. He was a very, very tall guy. He must have been 6'5", 6'6", very, very, very skinny with like half-mast trousers and like a shock of big black hair. Uh, He was dressed quite oddly, but he was carrying a rucksack. And because he was so like very tall, like his rucksack was where my face was. And right there on a sticker, a pink sticker on his rucksack was Herman's sigil. And so I was like, what? So I, I saw this sigil there. I, I absolutely like, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. So I did the only thing that made sense to me at the time and I started chasing him, which was probably like not the best thing to, to chase some massive guy through London. <laughs> but I, I just took, took chase, like running after him. And he was striding with these huge steps, like you know, taking the escalators up to, to the surface and these huge strides. And I was like running after him. I had a huge, huge backpack on that had like four or five days worth of clothes in and a load of books, heavy books, because we were researching the Ghostbusters episode at the time. So they're all like hardback books that I've got in this bag. And I was like struggling to catch up with him. And then I I caught him at at some traffic lights. And I thought like, I just want to read what, because there was a little, um, some writing on the sticker. I wanted to see what the writing was. 
And so I, I, I ran up and I stopped just by him as he stood at the traffic light and he noticed I was looking at his bag which is obviously not a good thing when you're in London because he obviously thought I was just going to rip him off. So he just ran off into the traffic. <laughs> like, I completely lost it him. It must have felt like so weird that it must have felt like, wow, I've I've just like seen into a different level of reality or something. It was, it was so like, weird because I hadn't been to Treadwell since I'd encountered Herman. I was on my way back there at that time. And then I see Herman's sigil. And I, I, yeah, it, it was very, very, very odd. Anyway, I, I, I was kind of upset that I'd lost him. I didn't really know what any of it meant. Um, and so when I went to get my tarot reading, I just mentioned it to the tarot reader. I, I said, like, I don't know if this is relevant, but on the way here, and I explained the whole story just as, as I, I've explained it. And um, I drew out the sigil. And he sort of turned the sigil round so that it's from 90 degrees from the way in which I originally saw it and said, that is the symbol for Extinction Rebellion. So that is that is what the guy's sticker, he'd, he'd put the sticker on his bag sideways so that it had made the, the, the so it looked exa- exactly like the sigil for Herman. And what the terror reader said was that Extinction Rebellion had taken that from an ancient rune. And uh. so I... I yeah, so I because I was in a bookshop, I went and got a book about runes and had a look, and it was Dagas. Interestingly, what Extinction Rebellion have done is taken Dagas and then turned it ninety degrees. So Herman's sigil is now ninety degrees back. So it is just Dagas, uh, which is a rune, and I'll link to some interpretations of it. Cause I don't have time to go through it all now, but it kind of means. Uh, day or dawn or awakening it means the courage needed to walk into total unknown in the pursuit of truth alone which is quite cool meaning considering that Herman has that as his sigil Um, it seems quite apt Um, it also felt a bit silly obviously that I'd been chasing some guy who had an Extinction Rebellion sticker on his bag through London that's kind of how it works though isn't it like with the with the the more I sort of read about the whole synchronicity thing and stuff like that, it, it often when you kind of find the reality of it, it, it or the, the sort of solution, if you like, it it is something quite mundane. But that doesn't. What matters is the time during the time in which you felt it. It has that significance. And yeah, that's sort of, it's yeah. something which has informed my whole idea of what magic is. But I'm not going to talk about that now. I want to talk about that in the next episode. Um, so as for Herman, um, I, I got my, um, I, I talked to Tara Reader a bit about Herman. I got my, uh, cards read, which is really cool. I'm not going to talk about that because that was quite personal. Although I, I'd recommend people getting tarot readings at Treadwell's, uh, because it was, it was really, really good. It was a really, really positive experience. Um, and I, I'll definitely go back, um, and what's the future for Herman? Like, what do we do? I mean, he's doing a really good job here. I have thought about moving on to some other task at some point and perhaps getting a different servitor just to shake things up a bit, uh, just depending on on how things go in the future. Is that uh, how it works? I mean, is it is it recommended that you do that to keep things fresh or is it? No, like- I don't think so. I think I think what I'm going to do is, so at the moment I'm, I'm running 
I think I feel like I'm running home on quite a basic level because I've been really, really busy. I've been I've been keeping up my offerings and so on, um, and all that kind of thing, and my petitions to him. But what I need to do is get down to some proper, maybe like pendulum divination, and to work out, you know, do you, do you like the offerings that I'm making? Uh, because I give him very different offerings than I do. Um, in in other bits of daily spirit work that I do to you know, other allied spirits and that kind of thing, so I'm going to work over the next few months on some pendulum divination with Herman to try to work out whether he's happy doing what I've got him doing, what he wants to do, whether my offerings are any good, and I'm just going to be guided by him. You know, if he wants to do something else, we'll find something else for him to do. I think. Yeah, it's um, it's so it's almost like it's almost like honing it, isn't it? It's almost like honing a or kind of perfecting it. Um, so yeah. for the for the if if it is like looking at it from the um, going back to Mark Vincent who we spoke to last week, like for so for someone who completely saw magic as being the, the like through the psychological model, if you like, then it's almost like a way of honing. It's almost like you're kind of honing your own skills and sharpening your own skills. Uh, in a way, but I don't necessarily subscribe to any particular one of those. I'm on the fence, really. But um, either way you look at it, it seems like a worthwhile thing to do. Yeah, I, I see it as kind of like a friendship. You know, you you meet someone doing a, a specific thing. You know, maybe you're in a band with them, maybe you work with them, or something. And then as you yeah. get to know them more, the friendship progresses, and you, you do other things with them. You know, and yeah. I think I think I think of it that way, and so I'm just going to ask Herman what he wants to do. You mentioned um, that when you saw the Tower Raider, you took another trip to London. What was what was that? Yeah, so the second time I went down to London in autumn was in October. And that was to do a course on, I think it was called The Way of the Shaman or something like that. Um, and it was arranged by the Sacred Trust. I'll link to their website in the show notes and they are basically an organization a non a non-profit organization who um have a certain i think they all it's almost like a accredited shamanic training or as close to that as i think they really have um and i'd been looking for something i'd been interested in shamanism 
from a lot of the reading I was doing, and particularly again in Six Ways by Aidan Wachter, uh, he does a lot of journeying and divination and that kind of thing, which had got me really interested in uh, journeying. And I'd got this book called The Shamanic Way of the Bee by Simon Buxton. And it's a really, really interesting book uh, because when you think of shaman and shamanic practice, you kind of think of maybe like somewhere in the Amazon or somewhere in Siberia or, you know, the um, indigenous people of yeah. perhaps North America or South America. Um, but I think the idea of shamanism from an anthropological point of view is that most places in the world had people who fit the description of shaman in their cultures yeah. th thousands and thousands of years ago. And the shamanic way of the bee is specifically about British shamanism. So what he discovers in this book, it's a really, really interesting book. He wanders one day into a field full of beehives and meets this guy and the guy's quite mysterious and quite interesting and quite funny. And he just decides on the spot, this guy who's writing the book, that he's going to become a beekeeper and sort of study with this guy. So he does, he starts studying with this guy about beekeeping. And then he finds that this guy is constantly talking philosophy and feeding his philosophical thoughts into beekeeping. And then as it, as it, unfolds it turns out that within these network of beekeepers is a network of sh shamanic practitioners practicing wow. the really really ancient <laughs> form of shamanism and he has these crazy experiences with bee venom and pollen and goes on these crazy trips it's really really fascinating book and there's one really really good bit i don't know whether i should spoil it but i'll talk about it briefly where they go to this island and it doesn't disclose where the island is but it's obviously somewhere off the british isles and on this tiny little island all that grows there is neurotoxic plants like nightshade and various other uh poisonous plants and there's, I think, just a small collection of beehives in the centre of the island. And the bees make honey with the pollen that they've connect, collected from these neurotoxic plants. And the honey becomes really potent and hallucinogenic. And obviously, he, he takes this honey and goes on a crazy, crazy trip. And <laughs> uh, it's really, really fascinating. It's, it's a fantastic book. I'd recommend it to anyone. And I will link to it in the show notes. Uh, anyway, I found that this guy was doing a course in in London, another two-day course. So I went down to do this and it stands out as one of the weirdest experiences of my entire life. So it was an introduction to the way of the shaman. I'll, I will link to it in the show notes. I can't remember the exact name of the course even now um, because it was so many different things. But Basically, it introduced you to the idea of shamanic journeying. It introduced you to the idea of spirit animals, power animals, um, journeying to serve a community, um, various forms of divination, 
various forms of healing. And this was all in just two days. Um, it was really, really crazy. And so just a, a couple of questions really before you, you go on. Um, do you think with the B guys, do you think that the time spent around bees somehow led them to this practice? As in, was it the observation of nature at such a close level and a kind of weirdly complex level in how bees are perhaps inspired them to look at things a little bit differently and maybe pursue these things or do you think yeah. or was it the way around do you think that they were attracted to bees because that, that within the bee kind of community they have like a uh, something which is inherently weird i think it was a bit of both I, th I think the things grew together i think i'm trying to think back to the book to, to see whether that's explicitly stated in it or not but the impression that i got was that it it, it almost fed into both things fed into each other so the observation of the bee and that contact at such a close level with nature in such an yeah. ordered and precise form yeah gave them greater understanding because shamanism isn't really a religion or anything like that so it's not as if they looked at bees and started to be religion it's more like they become guided it's the way of the bee a lot of what they do uh, is to do with the bees, but with beekeeping being such an ancient, so ancient form of, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I don't know whether they call it agriculture or not, but it, it, it is in, in a very small form, I suppose. Uh, I suppose that that was their life and yeah. they learnt from nature through the bees. Yeah. And so th that kind of brings me to the, the, the second thing I was going to ask, which was how would you describe, so you've said that shamanism isn't a religion, how, what would you describe it as? Is it a practice? Is it a... It's a practice. I, I think it, we have a few listeners who'll have a very good idea of what shamanism is, but I think yeah. we also have a few listeners who have no idea, so we should perhaps address that. Yeah, okay. I, this is going to come off the top of my head, so I'll probably offend the people who are into shamanism and not explain yeah. it well for the people who aren't. But this is it. I think that going through back through thousands and thousands of years through culture as it evolved, when we lived in communities and tribes th there was a role within those communities of a person who saw beyond what is ordinary reality so they connected to nature and the world and the universe on, on a level that perhaps other people within the tribe did not so they they could um use these abilities to it was essentially a form of magic, but it, it was a, a role within the community where they could offer healing or insight into you know, to people's problems. And they would lead ceremony and ritual and bring people in closer contact with the spirits. And that's what it's all about, is the contact with the spirits. And um, I'm, I'm not really describing that very well, but I can just, I can, I can, I can suggest a book, uh, which is the way of the shaman by Michael Hanna. And what this is from is going back to the start of the 20th century, anthropologists were studying these tribes that still had shamanism within them because mm. shamanism, sh shaman and people who practice shamanism were persecuted like absolutely in, in a lot of communities yeah. and, and particularly with the rise of 
religion, Christianity, and whatever. Yeah, yeah. There's some really, really horrific stories, which I'm not going to get into now, but perhaps we will find a guest who who will do that for us at some point. I don't yeah, have yeah. the knowledge, and I, I know that I'll murder something which is essentially a form of genocide. So anthropologists studied cultures that still had the shamanic role in it, and a lot of these were you know, perhaps uh, far-off tribes you know, who, who would would be you know, maybe in the Amazon or somewhere like that or mm-hmm. somewhere where they would um, take hallucinogens and that kind of thing. And to, to sort of put it in a very short and unnuanced way of describing this, they'd basically see someone do a bit of a dance, take some sacred drug, fall on the back of the floor, and the anthropologist would be like, ah, so the shamanic practitioner dances for two hours, takes a brew, and then sleeps for four hours, and they kind of close yeah. their book. And then towards the mid-20th century, they started to realize that the material experience that they were seeing was different than the spiritual experience that was actually being yeah. undertaken by the shaman. They realized, basically, that they, if they were going to study what was happening in this culture, they would have to partake in it themselves. Mm-hmm. And so then I think they started doing the dances. They started doing the ecstatic practice. And some of them even started taking the, uh, like the spiritual Ayahuasca brews. or whatever, yeah. This is where the ayahuasca thing comes from. But that, that, yeah. there's, only, there's only actually quite a small percentage of shamanic practice um, or, or cultures that have shaman that actually use those kind of drugs. You know, that's become very famous because I think it's a relatively low effort way to I was going to say it's an easy way in, isn't it? Whereas if it's, yeah. it's, it's easier than dancing for you know, four hours until you yeah, or, hit yeah, like or playing the drums for hours and hours. Yeah. So I wondered, is it the same throughout? Sorry, I've got a lot of questions, but I, you know, this, this is this is these are questions that I'm acting as a as a listener proxy here. So, did these people who um, studied shamanism throughout the world did they notice that it was essentially very similar practices? And do you think that do you think that you know, it's obviously cultures all around the it's ancient, it's happening in cultures all around the world, but are they all sort of clicking into the same thing? Are they all tapping yes, into the I, same thing even? I think so. And um so the Michael Harner who the, the book that I recommended was The Way of the Shaman was one of these people who tapped into it. And his book is a very good introduction um, I'm reading it at the moment, so I've not finished it yet, but it seems to be a very good introduction to a lot of these things, to journeying, to healing, yeah. and that kind of thing. If you if you want to get into the history of it, rather than having an instruction manual of how to partake in it, if you wanted to know where it all comes from, then it's um, Eliade is the person to read, and the book is Shamanism, Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy, and I'll link to that in the show notes. So do but, you have some experiences? Yes, so experiences? building up to the course, I was quite concerned that I would not be able to journey in the way that, and I wouldn't be able to find my spirit animal. And that had become quite <laughs> the kind of person in the way that my brain works. I, I That had become a preoccupation for me that I, I might not be able to do it. So the first time we all experienced it, mine wasn't a particularly typical experience i don't think so what you what you do is what how how we were guided into it was that you find something called the um 
the Praxis Mundi, um, which is a point that you know in ordinary reality where you feel safe and comfortable. So I picked a particular tree in, in the woods near my house that I thought about quite a lot. I don't know why I like that particular tree, but I do. And then you use that place to then journey into non-ordinary reality. So you've got the lower realm and the upper realm. Um, I think the actual, the way that this is viewed by Shaman is actually a bit different than that. I think that when you journey, you actually step outside of all the realities, the three realities, the middle realm where we are now, the upper realm and the lower realm. And you uh, then are able to see them more clearly or something. But that wasn't, we didn't go into that level of detail on this course because it was an introduction course. So the upper realm and the lower realm should not be confused with heaven and hell. It's not like that. It's not like the, the you know, there's loads of demons below or loads of angels above. But the lower realm apparently is usually more inhabited by animals and the upper realm is more humanoid creatures. So then they started some drumming. I think, can we run a sample of the drumming here at this point? Yeah, sure. I'll do that. Hang on a second. So the the drumming is at a certain frequency, a certain number of beats per second, which I think is about seven. And that essentially puts your brain waves into a different state, um, more like kind of dreaming. Um, I think you can look at more into that. I don't I don't know a lot about that. So there's yeah, various frequencies. It's like the alpha, the beta, the theta state. Yeah, of, yeah. exactly. And then, so this drumming started, you imagine yourself at this Axis Monday thing, and then you move down. And, and so I wanted to go to the lower realm. So I kind of moved through the roots of the tree. And the first time I did it, I found myself in this field that it was a lot sunnier than I imagined it would be for the lower realm. And within it, there was these mushrooms growing in the field, which were like uh, Amanita Mascara. Um, of course. Which... Of course. And so I, I looked around. I couldn't find anything. It was really empty. So I started wandering and I saw a mongoose. So I thought, oh, maybe this is my spirit animal. So I went to find it, but it was like I was accessing a different sort of information because I knew it was a mongoose for one thing, which I wouldn't be able to spot a mongoose amongst a group of other Large mammal, yeah, small was mammals. It, was it little Jeff the talking mongoose, do you think? Or do you think that no, was it could, an it could have been, it could have been. Yeah. But so I, I kind of knew it was a mongoose, but it didn't say anything and it kind of wandered off. So I wandered down into a sort of darker area where there was lots of trees and roots. And in that area, there was some mud. And in the mud, I found this weird thing. It had like gnashing jaws and it had like a segmented body. And I pulled it out of the mud and it flew away again without talking to me. And it was very, very odd. It wasn't a creature that is real, as far as I know. I, I don't think that they make them like that um, in real life, in ordinary reality. And then I carried on walking, and I felt the presence of something. And at that point, the drumming changed, which was a signal that we had to go back to ordinary reality. So I had to leave. Now, just for the listener, which is something that Buckley already knows about me, is that through my teenage years and my 20s, I had a lot of nightmares about bears. 
and I, I was quite afraid of bears. I'd often have dreams about them appearing, blocking my path, running after me, trying to attack me. It was always bears. And I was really concerned that going down a lower realm, I would find a bear. Um, and that that I, that's just for context, which is why I was a little bit worried and apprehensive when I felt this presence or something watching me down there in the lower realm. But anyway, I came back and then... Then later on that day, we journeyed and we went to the upper realm and I kind of went and it wasn't very clear and there was absolutely nothing there. It was really empty. And I was a bit disgruntled because I hadn't found, everyone else had a spiritual a spirit animal. You know, all these people had these magnificent steeds that they'd been riding around on the lower <laughs> realm. And I'd been essentially, you know, like digging some dragon thing out of mud and and fiddling with a mongoose. And I I felt, so I went to see the guy afterwards and I said, look, I haven't really found anything. I haven't found a spirit animal. I haven't talked to anything. Uh, what should I do? And he said, well, you can get these recordings on Spotify. Have a listen to those tonight. See if you can find anything. So uh, I'll link to these recordings, um, which are the, the drums like you just heard um, in the show notes. I went home. I was too tired. I fell asleep whilst I was listening to the drumming. I, hadn't, I started the next day basically on the back foot because I hadn't got any spirit animal. I hadn't had any really positive experience. But the next day, the idea was that we would journey in the service of someone else. So we would find that a question that someone would ask you and then you journey on that question in the lower or upper realm and come back with an answer for them. And that is more like a service that a shaman would provide to the community. So I was. I, I said to the person that I'd been paired up with, like, I'm really sorry, but I haven't got a spirit animal yet and I haven't really had any good journeying experiences. And she was like, oh, it's okay. You know, I've got faith in you. I won't tell you what questions she asked me because uh, it's, it's kind of personal, but the, the general experience was a lot, lot different. So I went down through the tree into that field again where the mushrooms had been, but this time these colorful little wildflowers were growing there and I wandered around. It was still really empty. I, I went down to the trees near where I'd found that weird chimera thing in the mud, and it was completely empty, and there was just these little flies, like midges, flying around. And so out of desperation, I just asked the midges her question, and they didn't say anything, but they led me back up to a certain spot in the field. So I, for some reason that I don't know, I just got to my knees and started digging. And I dug in the soft mud under the field until I found like a kind of metal hatch I opened the hatch and it led me down a kind of um, a kind of vertical tunnel that had mud steps within it. And I climbed down the steps into this network of tunnels and I wandered around the tunnels for a while. And there was like a beam of light, obviously, from a hole in the ceiling of the tunnel coming down. And in being in the light was this huge frog, you know, like an African Goliath frog or something like that. And. So I just asked the frog the question, this this person's question, and the frog started talking to me and it gave me some really weird, nonsensical information. And so I thanked it and I asked it if it wanted to come with me. Um, and it said it would walk with me for a while. So we walked together and it showed me the wall of this tunnel and it said basically dig. So I started digging again and I got through the wall of the tunnel and it opened out onto a hillside and it was like these beautiful meadows that went down into a valley and there was a river running through the valley. And so I thanked the frog. I asked him if he wanted to come with me. He said, basically, no, he doesn't want to leave the tunnel. So I left him and I walked down this hillside to this river. I got on my knees when I saw this water and started to drink the water. And it was really warm. It wasn't particularly refreshing, but 
it did make me want to put my feet in it. So I put my feet in the water and it felt really nice. So I put my whole body in the water and then I, sw- I swam down into the river and it was really deep and I swam into this little cavern and I found that I could breathe underwater and I went into this little cavern and there were two albino salamanders swimming in, around in this little underwater cavern. So I spoke to them and said, asked them the question again. Like I wanted, I wanted basically a second opinion and they, um, they get, they gave me some information and then I asked if they wanted to come with me. And one of them said, yeah, all right. So that I took the salamander, I put it in my pocket and I swam back out to the riverside and put the salamander on the riverside. And then I said, well, what should I do now? And he said, well, you've left my brother in the cavern. You have to go back and get him. So I was like, okay. So I swam back down into the river, into the cavern, grabbed the other salamander, put him in my pocket, swam back out, put him next to the other one. I said, right, where should I go now? And the salamander that talks said, well, I don't know. I've been in that cavern for ages. I don't know what's out here. So I was like, ah. So I, I kind of climbed onto the side of the riverbank and I started walking through these long weeds and then the drumming changed. And um, I, uh, I I went back to my tree in the Axis Monday and all that. And then I... Um, I, I found my way back into ordinary reality. It was just a very like weird and vivid experience. I, I know it sounds a bit like uh, something crazy. It but... sounds really like the the whole logic of it and the way that you sort of, you know, oh, so I realized I had to dig, so I dug and stuff like that. It sounds like um, certain episodes of The Leftovers, without wanting to spoil it, because <laughs> yeah. I've been re-watching it and this, like, the, we re-watched uh, the penultimate episode last night where one of the characters goes somewhere quite similar to that and a number of things happen to him. And it, it, it just the way like it, it, it's not quite the same as dream logic. There's something a bit different to it. That's not, Yeah, it, it, it's a bit more kind of uh, almost, it's got a few more rules to it than dream logic. It's just like, it, it, whereas dream logic is a bit more malleable. It's almost like it's, it's quite rigid. It's just very different to yeah. ours. It, 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 it was very, very strange. And a lot of it was like, because, I think some people have a very, very visual imagination and some people have a very not visual imagination. And I'm somewhere in between. Right. So a lot okay. of it wasn't in perfect. It wasn't like seeing things as I see them in ordinary reality. It, it had a different quality to it. And some of it was almost narrative. And some of it was perception in a way that I don't perceive things in ordinary reality at all. It was very weird. And then another weird thing that happened during that course, I, I traveled a couple more times. I joined a couple more times and that it was, it, I had some positive experiences. And then at the very end of the course, we had to journey on behalf of someone else to find um, an animal, which they may have had a spiritual relationship with in the past and that they may have lost. And of course, when I was partnered up with someone and they journeyed on my behalf, they came back from the lower realm with a bear and put the bear into me. And so uh-huh. since then I've been journeying on my own at home to try to, I suppose, make peace with the bear. This right. all sounds very, very odd, doesn't it? Like if it sounds like it, very, like the rantings of a crazy person. I, I don't I, know. I don't know. It's, a, I don't think it's, I, it, it's almost like, um, there's, there's almost like archetypal stuff in there. Like, you know, yeah. 
is it just I, I don't want to reduce your experience to you know oh this just this is just your you know like when people do like a really kind of obvious dream interpretation or whatever I don't want to do that but um and it's obviously to me it sounds like something that's outside of normal reality but yeah. but it's interesting how it almost feels like it's it, it doesn't sound like a a person who's mentally ill and <laughs> well, detached there from, is that no yeah, you, you, <laughs> yeah i think you know what i mean though it's, it doesn't yeah, sound yeah. like um like schizophrenic thinking it's interesting you mention archetypes because a few people i've spoken to about it have taken it on a, on a purely almost jungian sense you know it's like oh well the frog perhaps symbolizes you um you know like very knowledgeable but not very sort of active as in you know like um you know like perhaps like my job you know where i'm uh knowledgeable but stuck within a certain you know um basis of what i'm doing um and it's interesting because jung talked about active imagine and active imagination which seems to be almost like journeying but without the spiritual edge and then that was weird because i talked to you a bit recently about some sort of tiktok craze which is to do with shifting which sounds like a non-spiritual version of journeying more like active imagination in the Jungian sense but these kids on tiktok are basically using certain inductions to go into trance and then journeying often to hogwarts to see draco malfoy who's who's a character from uh, harry potter um, and have weird experiences with Draco Malfoy, which th- th- I, I have a lot of questions about this and I'm not going to ask them or solve them here tonight. I might look into it so we can talk about it in a later episode because th- does that mean, what's the difference between shifting and journeying? You know, like are, are they in contact, these people who are shifting, are they in contact with spirits in the way that shamanic practitioners believe that they're contacting spirits when they journey? You know, are, are they are they touching the other realm? Are they going somewhere else? And are these spiritual experiences, or is it some form of just active imagination? I I honestly don't know. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me. The first thing it reminds me of is it's um, like the whole when um, with Kenneth Grant and the Typhonian tradition using H.P. Lovecraft um, creations, ideas, uh, mythology, if you will as as a, a means to you know do the the the, the chaos magic because it, it yeah. doesn't matter what you use kind of thing and it's a similar thing but it's just for a generation that uh you know harry potter is the i'm not saying it's anywhere near as good as hp lovecraft but you know it's a similar it's a it's a work of fiction that's captured a lot of people's imaginations in a similar way yeah and I don't I don't understand the fixation with Malfoy in in that context at all but are they contacting something when they go and see Malfoy has Malfoy become this weird egregore Yeah with the egregore thing I mean it's it's it kind of ties into uh I've been re-listening to Penny Royal the Penny Royal podcast and I've been uh, listening to the um the Patreon episodes like that I've never heard before and they go in a lot with the the whole like, the whole information theory thing and the idea of it being like a the, the feedback loop with the information and how how it could just be that these are kind of almost egregores made from information that has looped back on itself so many times that it actually becomes real in the sense you know quotes kind of thing and the idea of kind of you could create a god like you could try to create a god and then you think about the whole like um, yeah. what was it the Philip experiment 
where they yeah. they essentially did that yeah. to a point where things started to happen and it's like it kind of almost it doesn't matter whether it's someone from a, a contemporary book that's quite a uh you know it's not as deep as and dark as lovecraft or, or you know it, it as long as the, the, the power is behind it and as long as the, the people are contributing to the feedback loop and as long as people are looking into it in the same way, observing it, then other people are observing that. Then as soon as observers are observed and then the loop happens, then it happens again and it multiplies and you get the same thing, you know, the same thing could be said about Hellier as well. It's uh, it's fascinating. It's like, it's mind-blowing stuff and it's like, it could just be that, you're all doing the same thing, but the, the, the shamanism from, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago and the TikTok thing. And I know that probably doesn't sound, that sounds quite, probably quite offensive to people who have that as their lifestyle. So I apologize for that, but I'm just sort of spitballing here. You know, it, it, the fact that they, they're all doing the same thing. It's just that one is like a new kind of version of it that doesn't have the same kind of uh, reverence or whatever. And it's, but it's the same kind of almost mental information technology if you like yeah I, I mean whatever these kids are doing with Malfoy in their imaginary Hogwarts it's something and it's real people are getting weird stuff out of this you know some of the I've only looked into it very briefly but they're having really odd experiences whatever I'm doing with this shamanic journeying when I listen to these drums and move down through that tree that 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 is something real as well because these aren't stories that i would just make up for fun about frogs and salamanders and bears and stuff there's this is there's something that i'm doing there which is real and which i don't think that many people do but which i think is available to all people to try yeah. so i would just invite people to grab yourself a copy of michael harner's book the way of the shaman read through it uh Get yourself some drums on YouTube or TikTok. Um, maybe not TikTok. Maybe try Spotify or something. TikTok will probably just take you straight to Hogwarts. But uh, you know, find yourself some shamanic drums and just give it a go. See what you find. See, see what it means to you. See what it reveals to you and see how profound your experiences are. And it ties in with a lot of other things as well. The guy who's taken the course, Simon Buxton, who wrote The Shamanic Way of the Bee, talked about synchronicity as well on the mm. course and he said that you know when synchronicities happen the spirits are near and, and often after i've done a journeying session i do have a run of synchronicities and that kind of thing and that's when i know it's been quite a, a potent session yeah um but there's this I'm, I'm just at the very very beginning of all this you know I, i've only done it a few times and i'm so keen to learn some more i've actually booked onto another course coming up which is more of a, a four-day residential course where i can tr try to learn a bit more about it and see because i'm really really keen on this and it's it's a fascinating thing to do it's quite time consuming um but it's it's really fascinating and I think it's really worthwhile and it's something that I'm going to pursue in the future and I will report back on.
So that just about brings us to the end of our Christmas episode. Thank you very much for listening. I'm speaking a bit quieter, by the way, because my partner's in bed. So I don't want to wake her up now. We haven't actually talked about anything very Christmassy. Absolutely nothing, no. <laughs> After no. <all>. So, <laughs> from, so the only thing that's Christmassy about this is, is when it's coming yeah, out. Yeah, <laughs> or the occasional burst of... Beautiful. I, I think I probably, when I got this lined up, I think I probably knew that it wouldn't be Christmassy enough and I needed to sprinkle some tinsel on the tree of vase. Very, and that tinsel yeah. was the tinsel of, of Christenberg's beautiful composition um anyway anyway so do you have any recommendations for us since we haven't talked about that for a while yeah i've uh i've read quite a lot of books actually and since we last kind of did a catch up on that um i don't remember which ones i've already mentioned but it doesn't matter if there's an overlap because you know we're all friends here uh so i mentioned that book um the science of the dogon by led scranton um I did read Simon's Necronomicon in research for the Ghostbusters episode, uh, which was interesting. How was that? Most of it isn't really a book, really. I think that the first chapter or so, the first part of it is kind of explaining it, and then the rest of it is all just describing how to do rituals and diagrams and stuff. So it was interesting. I mean, I think I'm more interested in the background behind it rather than the, 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 the book itself, if you see what I mean, in terms of uh, yeah, how yeah. it was written and, and what it became you know um as an artifact is quite interesting exactly. isn't it um so i read center of the cyclone by dr john c Lilly, which is um interesting in terms of this is a guy who did a lot of experiments in the 50s with lsd and various other hallucinogenics and he had a lot of experiences funnily enough very similar to heinz shamanic journeying uh, except with the use of various chemicals and or flotation tanks. So he's an interesting guy. He's another kind of counterculture type person, similar to, um, say, like Timothy Leary. Um, and he's an interesting guy to look up, John C. Lilly. He, he did some really weird stuff with dolphins. So, yeah, look into him. Um, I finished reading Time Loops by Eric Wargo, which I think I've mentioned before. That's a mind-blowing book about retrocausation and dreams. Uh, I highly recommend that to everyone. Um, I've just finished uh, The Green Stone by Graham Phillips and Martin Keatman, which is a book about psychic questing in the United Kingdom. Fascinating stuff. It's not the best written book ever, uh, but it's interesting. I'll tell you that. It's uh, it's it's cool stuff. Uh, read a book called The La Manche Zodiac by Catherine J. Preston. More about that to come, possibly. Um, I finished the audiobook of all three audiobooks of Robert Anton Wilson's Cosmic Trigger. The first one was amazing. The second two were still really good, just not as amazing as the first one. I've talked about them enough. You know that I love them now. Uh, they're brilliant books, and especially the first Cosmic Trigger. I'd highly recommend that to any of our listeners because it covers pretty much everything that we've talked about. Um, and I've been uh, very, very slowly listening to the audiobook of... Whitley Strieber's Communion, which is a really important text in ufology and also very, very difficult to listen to in audiobook form because it's really, really, really fucking disturbing. I've got that one to come. It's it's waiting in my yeah. queue of audiobooks. Strieber, Strieber reads, reads it, doesn't it, he? Yeah, sort of weepy voice. He's, that guy's been through some shit, whether it's, whether it's alien abduction or some kind of 
trauma that's been masked as alien abduction. I don't know, but yeah, it's... They should have got walking to read yeah. it. I could listen to that guy's voice. Those bizarre rhythms. It's like polyrhythms when you listen to Yeah, weird staccato. Like shamanic drumming, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, less, a lot less yeah. regular than that. It probably definitely has like an effect. He's an, quite an irregular guy. An effect on the mind, though, I imagine. Almost certainly. It's had an effect on my mind. He's in there somewhere. Um, what uh, Have you listened to any music? No. No, no, not at all. I say no, I have, I tell a <laughs> lie. Um, I've listened to this. You had me, you tricked me. Listen <laughs> uh, to that a bunch of times. Um, Lovely, beautiful. Yeah, um, to be honest, I listen to a hell of a lot of music. I can't think off the top of my head something that I've particularly been enjoying at the moment um because it's quite tired i'm quite, it's quite tired it's quite tired now um <laughs> it is, isn't let it? me let me just quickly hop on my band camp and see what i've bought recently uh i bought the new transcendence orchestra album who we've mentioned before um my friend claire does some really cool cool stuff um I did like a remix for her. Um, so she's, uh, see, I've not got that on my band camp because oh, this is this is turning into a disaster. Um, hang on. The ring yeah, roll. It's just, so Claire it's is on my band camp, but she's further down because I bought that a while ago. So yeah, it's hotgemtunes at bandcamp.com. Uh, and she's got a, a new track called A Witch's Bedroom. Well, the, the original track was called A Witch's Bedroom uh, and I did a remix of that and some other people, including my friend Thomas Ragsdale, did a remix of that. And she's got some other remixes and stuff on her band camp. There's some really, really cool stuff on her band camp. It's very strange music. Um, it kind of affects my brain in a weird way that I can't quite explain, but I'd highly recommend that you check her stuff out. Oh, and we also we also went to watch uh, a film, something in the dirt, which was fucking incredible. And if you're into any of this stuff, uh, I know that our uh, previous guest Will Salmon recommended it, and he was he was correct in his his uh, judgment there. It's a fantastic film by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, um, and all their films are good. I check out The Endless, uh, Resolution and Something in the Dirt, um, all fantastic, Something in the Dirt being particularly relevant. Enough of me, how about you? Yeah, so I've read quite a lot, um, again. So I've recommended those two books on shamanism, The Shamanic Way of the Bee by Simon Buxton and The Way of the Shaman by Michael Hanna. Um, I'm currently reading in audiobook form The Immortality Key by Brian C. Murarescu, um, which is quite good. That That's about how um, psychedelics might have played a role in uh, early religion. Well, they definitely did play a role in, in early religions, but um, perhaps in early Christianity, and um and it investigates all that kind of thing it's quite interesting it seems a little low on actual evidence at the moment um i'm more than halfway through um uh, maybe they'll pull a blinder at the end um but what they're saying is the base basic idea that um obviously there's the ecstasy is really missing from catholicism and a lot of modern christianity um even though it's talked about in the bible and even in mass um and what he's saying is that early on, 
there, in the sacrament, in the wine, there was psychedelics. And he thinks that this was the same for early religions that Christianity effectively usurped when it became the most prevalent religion. And so where you see like the wine gods being Dionysus and Bacchus, then it was Jesus became the wine god, you know, turned water into wine and so on, effectively took over their festivals. And the idea goes that if they were using psychedelics in those ceremonies, that early Christianity were also using it in their ceremonies. It's, it's interesting. It's an interesting idea. And and it, he seems like a very likable guy. He, he wrote the book and he reads the book and he's, he reads it really well. And another book written by the person who reads it was Life After Death, uh, Damien Eccles. That's a really good one. And that's just about him being locked away in prison for a murder he didn't commit or several murders he didn't commit. Um, it's quite disturbing, but it's really really good book um i read the sigil secret by mark vincent that we talked about can't recommend that enough you heard him on the last episode and you can read his book the wheel by jennifer lane uh, more on that coming soon um it's a really really good book about the uh, pagan wheel of the year uh, about witchcraft and how the author uh, jennifer lane used uh, magical practice to overcome stress and illness it's a really really good read really comforting and really well written um i also read i didn't know whether to talk about this or not but i will do because i want people out there to be able to make up their own mind i read pieces of eight by gordon white um and it's quite an interesting book um the problem is that i'm not really on board with gordon white as a person i'm not really on board with his ideologies i think that i think that we have to be able to when reading in this subject, be be able to make our own decisions and to be discerning about what we're reading. You can take, because you've got Crowley, for example, you know, I mean, I, you can't agree with everything he did or everything he said, but how do you look into this sort of stuff without, without coming across yeah. him and reading some of his books? I'm not, compa- I'm not comparing Gordon White to Crowley. What I'm saying is that there are some good ideas hidden away in there. And the book itself is actually all right, but you just have to watch because what Gordon White has become is something that I'm not really on board with at all. Um, I'm, I'm kind of very much not on board with him. I'm kind of directly opposed to a lot of what he's saying now. Um, he's, yeah, he's, I mean, I don't want to go into it, but he's a yeah. COVID denier and uh, he denies a lot of modern medicine and he talks a lot of stuff which goes in you know, like a right-wing direction that I'm not at all happy with. But I still wanted to read that book anyway, you know. Um, I actually, I did actually buy it before I knew all this about him, um, and I only just got around to reading it. But I'll say again, there are some decent ideas in there. You, know, you could improve your practice by reading this stuff, but you'd have to be discerning. Um, and that's, that's I've been reading a few other bits and pieces, um, nothing that I want to talk about just yet. We'll talk about in a later episode. I've done a few courses. I did a Treadwells one with Julian Vane, Applied Chaos Magic. That was fantastic. I've done some of Dave Lee's courses with um, the Last Tuesday Society. Uh, also very, very good. Um, and I also went to watch Agnes Obel live in Manchester, which was an absolutely transcendent experience. So I just put that in there. Um, I do a lot of my magical practice listening to two different musics, 
one being all of Agnes Opel albums. I put them all into a playlist. And the other is the uh, the Vase soundtrack by uh, Polypores. And I, I want to just um, talk about that again because we've completely changed the way we record the podcast due to people um, buying the album, which you can find on Bandcamp, and I'll link to in the show notes as always, and you can get there directly from our website. But that is the way to support us because there's no we don't ask for money we don't we don't have a PayPal and ask you for donations we don't have a Patreon because we yeah we don't have time at the moment to do that. Um, the only way that we are funding this podcast is through sales of that one album. Um, so if you haven't bought it yet um, and you like it and you want to, then just know that that money will go directly to paying for the recording setup that we have now and our pod hosting because all this podman costs money um and um we, we are not making anything out of this we're, we're actually making a sizable loss from doing it we're doing it for the love of the work <laughs> if you buy the album it's not the money's just not going to me i'm not funneling it all into my own synthesizer addictions etc uh it's going you have many other albums that do that for you. Exactly, yeah. The other way that you can support us is just to go to wherever you listen to this um, and please um, do the rate, review, subscribe thing. That really does help because the way the algorithms work, if you rate this, and please give us a good rating. If you, if you, don't, if you don't enjoy it, just don't give us a rating. But if you do enjoy it, give us a rating, a five-star rating and uh, leave a quick review because people do actually read them um, and subscribe to our podcast because that will push it up in the algorithms and then new people will find it. And just tell a friend about it. Tell a friend about Vase, tweet about it, uh, give someone else a link. If you know someone, I know that a lot of people who are into this sort of stuff don't use social media. Um, they aren't on Twitter. They aren't on Facebook. We're not on Facebook anyway. They're not on Instagram. So just tell them, you know, do the a digital equivalent of putting it in their hand and telling them to listen to it uh, if you think they'll enjoy it because we're doing this for people to listen to hopefully and we really really appreciate everyone who does listen to us um so you can find us on instagram you can find us on twist twitter at at vase and then vase spelled backwards so that's at v-a-y-s-e-e-s-a-y-a-v and um thanks everyone who's listening we really really do appreciate people listening and we do want to hear from you so if you want to contact us you can contact us through twitter or through instagram the most direct way is probably to just email us at faceinfo at gmail.com and it's really brilliant just to hear from anyone you know, if people tweet us we tend to reply um i want to shout out uh, some american listeners you know, you've got bob freeman who uh he's always a pleasure to uh to to tweet um there's a uh, a lady called maggie in california who uh, often tweets us and has been listening to the podcast and we really really appreciate the listens anyone who listens to us um this is that's why we're doing it yeah i think bob is particularly notable because I, I seem to remember bob freeman was the first person who we didn't know who tweeted about us who wasn't kind of one of our friends yeah. it was like a stranger who we didn't know so it's like we've made it this guy bob freeman so he's he's kind of got a special place in our hearts so thank you bob and he's an occult investigator he's a, an occult detective himself he certainly is. And you, you can find him on twitter and you can um he's uh written books he's got his patreon he seems to have a great taste in in films and television as well and music tweets a lot about led zeppelin which is i'm on board with that 
Um, and so I think that's about it. I just want to wish everyone a happy Christmas, Yule, Saturnalia, winter solstice, uh, any festival of light, midwinter, anything that you celebrate, uh, we're there celebrating with you. Yeah, likewise. I, I, I agree. And thank you very much. And I hope you all have a great time. Um, I have one final question for you, Hein, before we go. <laughs> one last final question. Oh, do, do tell. So... It's a, it's a question in two parts. What is the greatest Christmas film ever made and why is it The Muppet Christmas Carol? Yes. <laughs> <laughs>